So, Romans chapter 14. Accept him whose faith is weak, without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man, whose faith is weak, eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Another man considers every... Sorry. And each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one man as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meats eats to the Lord. For he gives thanks to God, and he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother, or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow down before me, every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves, but the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. Now, when I was uh, very young um, uh, and a very keen amateur footballer in the Oldham Amateur League, I played for a team that I'd actually helped to start. We began in the second division of the Oldham Amateur League. After our first season, we were at the bottom. After our second season, we were at the top of the second division and we got promotion into the first division. And it was about that point that I I received a great honour because I was granted the opportunity to play for the whole of the league, uh, the first division of the Oldham Amateur League against another division. I'd been selected out of all the teams to play for this 11-man team. I was full of pride and I was full of uh, excitement 
But then I discovered that the game was to be played on Good Friday. I was a young Christian. I'd been a Christian a couple of years. And uh, I thought that Good Friday must surely be the most sacred day in the Christian calendar. I was struck by a crisis of conscience. And after a few days of agony, I withdrew my name from the team and sacrificed this honour. And I suffered for a little while from shattered dreams. And then the Lord called me into the Christian ministry, into a job in which most Easter weekends I work. Good Friday, Easter Sunday. Uh, I found, soon found out that a lot of my church members did not regard the Easter weekend in the same way that I did. They I was regarding it as a very important opportunity to worship the Lord at his death and resurrection. A lot of my church members thought it was a great weekend, first opportunity in the year to get away with the kids and lie on the beach and play football on the beach. So um, I often psych myself up for the glorious event that is Easter Sunday, only to find the congregation terribly depleted as it is today. And I've been tempted to rename the weekend the Easter Anticlimax. But I am not bitter. <laughs> I forgot to turn this on. What happened? Did anything happen? Oh. So the thing that I discovered later on in my Christian journey was that the Bible nowhere demands reverence for Good Friday. I wish I'd known that when I was 19 years of age. We're called to make Sunday a day of rest and a day when we gather to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. We're called to, from time to time, I believe the early church had it every Sunday, but we're called from time to time to have a meal together, a communion meal, to celebrate the death of Jesus for our sins, uh, for our forgiveness from our sins. But there is no biblical demand whatsoever that we observe Advent, or Lent, or Easter, or St. Columbus Day, or Monday Thursday, or any of the Queen's birthdays. There is no biblical warrant. But as a young right-winger, I had to obey the voice of my conscience and sacrifice one of the biggest opportunities of my extremely insignificant footballing career. As we come to the end of our journey through Paul's letter to the Romans, we find ourselves in the territory of sensitive consciences over religious traditions. Most of you, I'm sure, will be aware that uh, those, there were those Jews who honoured the law of Moses and they had certain traditions that marked them off from the Gentile world. There was circumcision. There was diet. There were holy days. And mixed with all that was the issue of clean and unclean. If you're brought up with a sensitive conscience that certain things make you, defile you, and make you morally and spiritually unclean, then it can be very difficult to relate to unclean people. Uh, a young Muslim evangelist once came to the church that I was serving in Birmingham. And he came for the express purpose of trying to convert me to Islam immediately after I'd preached. So he approached me as I was standing at the church door and he told me that it was absolutely impossible for the Lord Jesus Christ to be the Son of God, 
God in the flesh because he had to use the toilet. And anybody who uses the toilet is unclean. And the Son of God could not be unclean. So it couldn't be true. See, as a Muslim, he'd been brought up to believe that pork makes you unclean and that going to the toilet makes you unclean. And so it's, it's a very great area of sensitivity. So for a, um, for a Bible-believing uh, Jew, days and, uh, and diets were incredibly important. Certain days were to be observed as holy to the Lord. It was important to, to circumcise your eight-day-old sons uh, in obedience to the God of Abraham. The Gentiles didn't do most of this stuff. They had their own traditions. Some of them observed special days. Some of them had dietary requirements. But the Jewish uh, view of diets and days and circumcision uh, was the God-ordained deal. So we're going to Romans uh, in the first century. This is Rome. And the church was probably a network of congregations throughout the city. And it may be that the church in Rome came into... Uh, existence because of some Jews who were converted on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem and went all the way back to Rome to establish the gospel there. And uh, Rome was a turbulent city. It was politically and religiously turbulent. The, an emperor, as he did in, the, in, in Romans, the emperor might dismiss all the Jews out of the city of Rome for the next emperor to invite them all back again. So the Jews and the Gentiles... Uh, Jewish Christians and believing Gentiles, Christian Gentiles, were thrown together into this extraordinary melting pot that was the city of Rome. And it led to strong differences of opinion on what was of first importance and what was of secondary importance in the life of the church. So you see in, um, in chapter 1, uh, in chapter 14 and verse 1, the little word, Opinions. I don't know what you've got in the NIV. Disputable matters. Opinions. The Greek word, you all know the Greek word that is there. It's dialogismos. It's the word from which we get dialogue. And the word before it is dispute. Disputing over opinions. And I, I looked up um, Eugene Patterson's uh, paraphrase uh, from uh, the message this is how he puts it just keep your eye on Romans chapter 14 verse 1 welcome with open arms fellow believers who don't see things the way you do and don't jump all over them every time they do or say something you don't agree with even when it seems that they are strong on opinions but weak in the faith department remember they have their own history to deal with treat them gently this is a lovely Paraphrase. You get the picture. Diets were incredibly important because they marked out your national identity. They were important ethical markers. They were important racial markers. They, they were the massive issues in the church. They were the Jewish red lines beyond which you must not go. Uh, they were, these are great issues in the church. These issues almost smashed the church in Turkey in the first century. Because the Apostle Peter was suddenly stricken in his conscience and he stopped eating with the Gentiles. Because the Gentiles ate all sorts of filthy stuff. And he, he stopped sitting down at table with the Gentiles. He cut himself off from fellowship with them. And the Apostle Paul 
um, withstood him to his face. They had a, a stand-up theological boxing match there in Turkey, in Galatia. Well, you see this reference in verse 5 to diets and days. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced as to his own mind. He who regards one day a special dosel to the Lord. He who eats meat, eats to the Lord. So there were Christians in the church in Rome who had what I would like to call a robust theology. And they'd understood that pork was just meat. It was an animal with meat on its bones. It was okay to eat it. God made the cow, he made the pig. Uh, these Old Testament regulations about the pig being unclean were no longer applicable in the New Testament age. So steak, Diane, and the pork sarmi belonged to the same glorious, enjoyable experience. But there were Christians, too, there were Christians who had these robust views. Oh, give me a pork sarmi. Uh, it's just as enjoyable as a 14-ounce steak. And I'm not sure that I would agree with that, actually, even though I've just said it. But there you go. Well, in that pagan world, also, a Jew, an Orthodox Jew, who hadn't quite got over these, these kind of theological ideas would find that very difficult. And then, in those days, there was also the, the whole business of a lot of the meat on sale in the market had been um, presented to a pagan deity. So you might be buying something in the market that had been presented to Zeus uh, as a, an offering to him, then slaughtered as a sacrifice to Zeus, and then the bits that were left over were flogged off in the market. So there were Christians who found it hard to eat meat at all because most of the meat in the market had been offered to some pagan god or other. Now, there were other Christians who had this more robust view who said, there's no such thing as Zeus, he's a figment of the imagination. So all meat in the market, I can enjoy it to the full because it doesn't bother me one bit. It's time for religious, special religious days. Many Jews had these well-defined views of what you could or could not do on, the sa on, on Saturday, on the Sabbath, or, it, or sunset on Friday to sunset on Saturday. How far you could walk, how much work you could do, what kind of work you could do. That even to this day in Jerusalem, there are hospitals where on the Sabbath day, the, the lifts go up and down constantly. Um, and you don't have to press a button to call the lift because pressing a button is work and you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. So there was all that going on. Uh, the, the, but there were other Christians, Gentile Christians, who were not bothered about the Sabbath at all. Indeed, they met on a working day. They met on Sunday, the first day of the week, which was a working day. They met in the evening and they called it the Lord's Day because that was the day Jesus rose from the grave. So there, there were tremendous differences of opinion about diets and days. And, and Christians were in danger of hurting each other because of these disagreements. And the unity of the church was in danger of fragmentation. So in reading Romans chapter 14, it's hard not to come to the conclusion that the robust group outnumbered the more sensitive group because Paul appeals to them most of all. I can't prove that, but it strikes me that that might be the case. I pointed it anywhere. Did it change? Oh. 
See, I've got this power. I've got power. I've always wanted one of these. So, I think it's hard to uh, exaggerate how important this is, not just for the church, but at every level of human experience. And I think we're living in a day when trampling on the feelings of people you disagree with is so easy. And it's not only easy, it's capable of more hurtful power than any in a previous age. Social media enables us, particularly Twitter, enables us to say hurtful and vile things to and about people instantaneously and to a pretty wide audience. I I read caustic, personal, hateful stuff about all manner of people, not, not least President Donald Trump, from all sorts of people, including some Christians of my acquaintance, uh, we are called, are we not, to love and to pray for people we don't like? Uh, we are called to treat others as we ourselves would like to be treated. And it's very prob- probable that the president can manage to deal with vilification that comes his way without a great deal of personal trauma. It may be water off a duck's back to him, but the 14-year-old boy who's alone in his bedroom and hangs himself in his bedroom because of the humiliation he's received on social media is not so robust. We are in an age of knee-jerk put-downs and humiliation. Tweet it now. Tweet it without thought. Don't think about God and his son, Jesus Christ. Don't think about the fact that God made that person about whom I'm going to tweet. Don't think about the fact that he is made or she is made in the image of God, even if he or she is a celebrity. Neil Ferguson, who's one of my favorite correspondents in the Times, he's a professor of history at uh, Harvard University. He um, put something out in the media this week, which is basically a reference to a friend of his who's abandoned Twitter. Let me just read to you what she said. The viciousness, toxic partisan anger, intellectual dishonesty, motive questioning, and sexism are at all-time highs with no end in sight. It is a place where people who are understandably upset about any number of things go to feed their anger and where the underbelly of free speech is at its most bilious. Twitter is now an anger video game for many users. It is the only platform on which people feel free to say things they'd never say to someone's face. For me, it has become an enormous and pointless drain on my time and mental energy. I love Twitter, but I'm aware that there have been times when I've said something and I've deleted it right away because there are moments thought I've realized that It's very difficult to convey feeling and heart in the harsh words of whatever it is. It used to be 147 characters. So at every level, here we are, we're talking about Romans chapter 14 and about the potential for hurting other sensitive Christians by the things you say and by the the disputes in which you engage. And 
I think it's something, a principle that we need to be careful about at every level of society, that we're not critical and judgmental. So if you really believe Romans chapters 1 to 13, then here's how you should live. If you've experienced the grace and kindness of God in the gospel through the person and work of Jesus, here's how you should behave. That's what Romans 14 is saying. If you have been, Romans chapter 6, if you've been united to a king who died the death you deserve and who rose that you might have abundant life, a life that you could never have earned, here's how to respond. If you truly believe that the judge of all the earth has removed from you all condemnation and for all your stinking behavior, then this is how you should treat other people as a consequence. So the, this, these chapters are, are really talking about this wonderful gospel that's been described throughout Romans 1 to 12 particularly, at the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12, talking about the incredible mercies of God. It's now saying, well, this is the kind of life you should live, especially in the way you relate to one another. Here's the first thing, welcome the weak. Verse 1 of... Um, of Romans, welcome the weak. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. Here's someone you disagree with over days and diets and drink. He's too theologically fragile to enjoy a bacon sarni and a pint of beer. He thinks you're not a proper Christian because you drink alcohol. It would cut his conscience in half if he had a gin and tonic. Welcome him. Receive him. Em emotionally embrace him. Make him feel as much at home with you as, as, as you would if, he agreed, if you agreed with him 100%. Especially when it involves secondary matters. If his views undermine the gospel, if his views are destructive to the gospel, oppose him to his face. But over every other matter of disagreement, have a welcoming heart. When I was 26 years of age, I was a Methodist minister in the Abertillery Circuit in South Wales. I was in charge of six struggling Welsh chapels. I was invited to attend the fraternal of the Evangelical Movement of Wales. Uh, here were men, a whole bunch of men, maybe 20 men, who regarded Methodism as a movement that had lost its way. They were all robust Calvinistic ministers. They all knew the Bible backwards. Well, probably not backwards, but they all knew the Bible really well. And they believed that my denomination had helped to undermine the cause of Christ's kingdom in Wales. And these were the guys of robust theological convictions. They thought Methodism was theologically doomed. And he was a young Methodist Wesleyan minister turning up among them. <laughs> I have never had such a warm and loving and friendly reception from a group of men. I was welcomed. I was received. They even asked me to speak at one of their meetings. <laughs> And that did more good to me than a thousand hours of debate and controversy. And remember verse 3. The God who holds the universe in the palm of his hand 
has welcomed that weak Christian. What on earth am I doing holding them at arm's length, writing them off, uh, putting them in a category with which I don't want much to do? Do we know more than God? Do we have higher personal standards than God Almighty? The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. How often in the life of our church, in, in our life together, have we avoided someone, written somebody off, because uh, we, we don't really like what they stand for very much. Don't quarrel over opinions. So welcome the weak. And secondly, don't despise and judge. Verse 2, one man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. He can't possibly eat meat because it might have been sacrificed to some pagan deity. I don't think it's talking about vegetarianism, by the way. I think it's talking about this other spiritual stuff. Now, you all know, I'm sure, what it's like to be in the presence of the superior people. I was telling Pauline, with some sadness this week, um, a memory came to my mind about Les Dyson. Les Dyson was my best mate in school when I was 13. And I abandoned him because I wanted to join the superior crowd. I dropped Les like a stone and I joined myself to John Radcliffe, the good-looking footballer, and his little crowd. Abandoned Les, joined them because they were the superior people. You all know what it's like to be in the presence of the superior people. You feel it in your gut. You know that you don't belong in this race of great beings. They're in first class. You'll be low decks in a cabin without windows. I think that's my working class cynicism coming out there. Forgive me. <laughs> there is a kind of inverted working class snobbery about me that I try to resist, but it sometimes comes out. Don't be a man or woman who looks down upon people from a position of superiority. Romans says, you've all sinned. You've all fallen short of the glory of God. That's Romans chapter 2. You've all um, broken God's law, Romans chapter 2 and chapter 3. You're all hopeless and helpless unless the grace of God in Christ comes to your rescue. You all deserve judgment, severe judgment, and you've all instead received abundant mercy. What makes you think you can adopt an air of judgmental superiority over anyone, including Donald Trump? Criticize his policies by all means, robustly and vigorously and intellectually. But don't adopt an air of judgmental superiority as some kind of being on a higher level who looks down upon the, these people from a throne of judgment. Don't write him off. Don't stick him in the category of inferior person to be thought of contemptuously. Don't do it to a fellow believer. Look at verse 4. That person, who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, 
for the Lord is able to make him stand. That person we're inclined to pass judgment upon, especially in the life of the church, has a master, and it's not you. You're not that person's master. So what are you doing sitting in judgment as though you were? Tread carefully, this is saying. Tread carefully. Glance at, just have a glance at verses 5 to 12. You can see I'm struggling to deal with all the verses in this chapter, but just glance at verses 5 to 12. You don't know the heart of the woman you're inclined to criticise or condemn. He regards one day as special, does so to the Lord. He who eats meat, eats to the Lord. He gives thanks to God. And he who abstains, does so to the Lord and give thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord. You don't know the heart of that woman. You're inclined to criticize or condemn. Only the Lord, the eternal judge, only he knows them. He alone knows their motives. He knows their history, knows their story. He knows their sincerity or otherwise of their opinions. So watch out, you little judge. You're going to stand before the judge of all the earth. And you might find out that your opinions were flimsy, wrong and worthy of judgment. You might discover to your shame that you were guilty of the same sins you were so quick to damn damn in other people. Don't despise and judge. So very easy, I find it so easy. My heart, my heart rushes to judgment so quickly. And my mouth follows hard on its heels. So thirdly, this is behaviour that flows from the gospel. Behaviour that flows from the gospel. Pursue peace and encouragement, verses 13 to 23, especially verses 17 to 19. Do not allow, verse 16, do not, do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Let us, therefore, make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Kingdom of God is not primarily about secondary things, even though they might appear important to us, eating, drinking, holy days, and all those things. The, the, the primary things, the primary issues of the kingdom of God are righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. What's happening here, I think, is that Paul is reflecting on everything he said before in this gospel, in this letter, The gospel brings you into a place in which God confers upon you the status of righteousness. Righteousness. That's been his preoccupation from chapter 1. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed. The death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ has brought you into a place where God treats you as righteous. He places you into union with his son, the perfectly righteous one, and he begins to treat you as a person wrapped up in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have a righteousness that is a gift, a righteousness that you didn't achieve by your own efforts. 
righteousness, peace. That's the second thing, peace. Uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 1, that uh, therefore, having been justified by grace, you have peace with God. God was once your enemy. He was the judge who sentenced you to everlasting death. But instead, now you are at peace with God. You've been welcomed into his family. You can speak to him as a father. And he treats you as a friend, a beloved friend. And he, and he treats you in the same way. He gives you everything, every status that his beloved son Jesus had. We are co-heirs with Christ of all the glory of God. That's, what the, peace, that's the peace of God that, that, we've, that we've received as a gift. And joy, righteousness, peace, and joy we can rejoice we can have joy in the hope of the glory of God a hope that is certain not a hope that is maybe we can enjoy we can rejoice now because our hope is certain I don't know that you've caught up with this but football is not coming home <laughs> the only World Cup Winner's medal heading for Manchester this summer is in the pocket of a Frenchman. Our hopes were ignited and then extinguished. What joy we had when we won our first penalty shootout. And our hopes began to rise. And then we met the Croatian midfield in all its power and brilliance. And our hopes were dashed. But here's a hope which will never bring disappointment. We can know the joy that the Holy Spirit brings to our hearts from time to time. I love this. I love this um, stanza. Can't remember whether it's Isaac Watts or Charles Wesley. Give me the wings of faith to rise within the veil and see the saints above. How great their joys! How bright! Their glories be. Give me the wings of faith to rise within the veil and see the saints above. How great their joys, how bright their glories be. If you're a Christian here this morning, you possess a righteous standing before God because of Jesus. You enjoy the peace of a settled place in God's family. And you can... Rejoice today that your place in the glory to come is absolutely secure. So watch your business. Don't hinder your brother Christians by hard-hearted nitpicking over secondary matters. Your business is the same as the Holy Spirit to do your best to strengthen them. And build them up. To do your best to enrich them. I've lived long enough now. I've been a minister since 1968. It's a long time. I've been a minister long enough to know that there are so many reasons to condemn the church. They don't love me enough. They're not friendly enough. They're not kind enough. They don't give me a sense of well-being. They, they, they. It's always they. It's never me. It's very rarely me. I don't do enough to build up my fellow believers. It's always they who are not treating me properly. No, no, we're called by the Holy Spirit to do our best 
to strengthen them and build them up. Not to be always questioning whether they are doing that to me. Try to encourage them. See, the road ahead for all of us is littered with difficulties and struggles and problems. Why should you make it more difficult for your fellow travelers? Why not try to do your best to help them, strengthen them? Do what you can, when you can, to help them to be stronger disciples of Jesus. The world, the flesh, and the devil will make for difficulties enough for them without adding to them. Let me finish with this. I'm just going to read verses 1 to 5 of chapter 15. I'm going to read it slowly because I haven't got much to say on it. Don't tell Nigel. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. And the Greek word in verse 7 of chapter 15, accept one another, is the same word as in chapter 14, verse 1. Accept him who is weak and faith. So take a look at that last statement on the, on the overhead. The whole life and ministry of Jesus was to give you a welcome you didn't deserve into a kingdom you didn't earn. So make that your life's calling to do that for each other. Let's pray.